Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and today is the publication date of my new book, The Savage Storm, which I know I've been talking about rather a lot with Al over recent months. Anyway, after all the writing, after all the research, etc., travelling around the mountains of southern Italy, it's finally arrived and it's here. And so today we're going to put out uh, a special edition, which is Al reading the prologue and chapter one of the new book. Um, I do so hope everyone finds it interesting and enjoys it. Prologue. Mid-August, 1943. A day crossing of the Straits of Messina, the slight sea breeze offering some relief from the relentless heat of the broiling sun. Lieutenant Hans Golder stood on the ferry gazing back at Sicily. He was a sentimental fellow on occasion, and he couldn't help feeling wistful about the island that had become so dear to him. The mountains rose up almost from the shore, looming magnificent and immutable against the deep azure sky. And beyond, Etna, that still smouldering volcano that so dominated the northeast of the island, the part over which they had been fighting these past seven weeks. And, because he was prone to sentimentality but also optimism, Golda had rather filtered out the more disagreeable aspects of Sicily the relentless burning rays of the sun, or the surly Sicilians with whom they'd associated so little. Italians who were still, on paper at any rate, allies. People who, for the most part, had struck him at earlier moments during his time there as dirty and distant. Weeks before, he'd been shocked by the squalor, by the garbage and filth left near the front door of almost every house. He had cursed the clouds of flies that swarmed around anything edible, and also the bitterness of battle the blackened corpses, the destruction, the defeat, the knowledge that they had fought so hard and yet had been pushed back, leaving the dead and captured behind. The enemy had crushing material superiority, but Golda had put such considerations to the back of his mind, so that now, as he crossed those narrow waters, where Odysseus had skirted past the six-headed Scylla and survived being swallowed by Charybdis, he did not feel despondent or beaten up, but rather a sense of pride at how his men had performed and something close to affection for the magnificence of the island. The Battle of Sicily was over, but, as he was well aware, the Battle of Italy was surely soon to begin. Not quite 40,000 German troops had managed to get away from Sicily, of whom only 26,000 were from the four fighting divisions, divisions that should have had around 15,000 men each. Golda and his men were part of the badly mauled 15th Panzergrenadier Division. How that division had been dragged through the mill over the past few years. Sent to Africa in April 1941, it had been part of the spearheading Deutsches Afrika Corps, but then it had been savaged at Alamein 
18 months later, and utterly destroyed in Tunisia six months after that. From a skeleton, and then from odds and ends, men recovering from wounds, an artillery company here, a panzer battalion there, office clerks and backroom boys. Division Sicilian had been formed, to which Golders Werfer Regiment 71 had been attached. They were equipped with 210mm five-barreled rocket launchers firing high-explosive warheads known as Nebelwerfers, literally fog-throwers. They gave a high-pitched moan as they sped through the air. In July, Division Sicilian had grown enough to become 15th Panzer Grenadier Division, a motorised, all-arms unit of infantry, armour, artillery, engineers and reconnaissance troops, but also a reflection that the Wehrmacht had fewer tanks to spare than it once had. Golder still liked to call it Sicilian, but those days were over. And in any case, most of its number had remained forever on the island. No one was under any illusion that the division now needed rebuilding yet again. It was like a phoenix, repeatedly reborn. It was also indicative of Germany's parlous situation. It was losing the war. Nonetheless, they would fight on, and if 15th Panzer Grenadier Division were to emerge from the fire again, it would need a little time and space, and that meant heading north, more or less out of harm's way. There, replacement troops would arrive, more equipment, more vehicles, if they were lucky, and then they would turn and face the enemy once more. How long did they have? That was anyone's guess, but Golda was just glad to be alive, to still have his vehicles, at least some of his naval werfers, and for the time being, at any rate, a break from the fighting. Their orders were to head first to Palmy, a little over 20 miles away, where the remains of the regiment were due to reassemble. First, though, they needed to safely reach the other side. Earlier, as they'd waited to board, an enemy reconnaissance plane had buzzed over, but immediately more than 300 guns had opened fire either side of the straits. Golda had watched the tracer, fingers of death reaching up into the sky, and the plane hurriedly scuttled off. Relief. Soon enough, everyone was across safely. No further Allied planes had dared to disrupt the evacuation. Slowly, carefully, Golda rolled his Volkswagen off the ferry at Via San Giovanni in the toe of the Italian boot, mountains gazing down at them in almost a mirror of those the far side of the straits. Golda was at the wheel, the compact car packed with boxes, and his trusted France sitting on top trying to keep these precious treasures together. Behind them, the Werfers of his 7th Battery these six-barrelled rocket mortars, towed by trucks and half-tracks. Gingerly, they trundled their way along the coast road, the Tyrrhenian Sea wine dark on their left, wheezing up switchbacks behind the coast towns of Banyara and Sant'Elia, until, crossing a valley thick with olive and citrus groves, they reached the little coastal town. Golda's heart ached to see what this once charming little port had become since last he'd passed through, dead and abandoned, Houses smashed, streets torn open by bombs. He was glad to push on through, away from the desolation, to Division Sicilian's assembly area beyond. They rolled in, marching group after marching group, threaded into a movement order, marshalled by large numbers of field gendarmerie. Golda was happy to follow, no longer needing to look at a map or think about where to go. There was only one coast road, and he could always follow the vehicle in front. Where there were detours, posts had been erected to show them the right way. The sun bore down, dust swirled, throats became parched, but they were used to that. Then night again, on they drove. Rosario was badly smashed, and an excited lone bomber dropped some fragmentation bombs as they passed through. But no one was hit, 
just a factory shed set on fire, the flames vividly bright against the night sky. One day, they reached Sapri, a quiet fishing town in a horseshoe bay, mountains once again rising behind. The mountains, they were never far away in Italy. The coast road wound its way through the little town, kissing the coast, and here they paused in the shade of an orange grove for a rest and a swim in the twinkling sea. Just a little way out, a white hospital ship was at anchor, the red crosses shining in the sun. Small boats were ferrying out the wounded, and Golder found himself wishing for a light wound, just so that he could sail on this magnificent ship. Precious hours. A little garden gift from God, he thought. And then, on again. At dawn they were climbing along another stretch of mountain road, steep sides to their right, a sheer drop to their left. Suddenly, a low-flying aircraft thundered over them. They were sitting ducks. One long sheaf of fire and the road would have been closed for a day. But inexplicably, the pilot never opened fire. Perhaps his ammunition was already out. Perhaps he felt merciful that day. They reached the Bay of Salerno and a brief, narrow strip of coastline with the mountains pushed back a little way inland. Golda marvelled at the ruins of Paestum, for a brief moment a tourist, not a warrior, as he gazed at those ancient Greek temples, city walls and amphitheatre, thousands of years old and less touched than some of the shattered towns they'd passed through. On they rumbled, through Salerno itself, just as the bombers began circling for home. Following a hastily cleared path around bomb craters, dodging freshly collapsed buildings through air still thick with smoke and dust. Up ahead, several vehicles had been struck. Anti aircraft, flak guns boomed, shells pumping the sky. Golder saw several of these deadly giants hit. One even broke up in the sky, its debris crashing down into the town below. A second bomber plunged into the mountains overlooking the port, while from a third, thick, Black smoke trailed across the sky in the distance. It was Thursday, the 19th of August, 1943, three days after Axis forces had abandoned Sicily forever. Whatever gloom Golda and his men may have momentarily felt, he was cheered by the magnificence of Vesuvius and the glow of lava spilling from its summit, vividly blood-red against the night sky. Naples, that great city port, they bypassed and pushed on, then rumbled by Caserta with its vast, dominating palace that so dwarfed the rest of the town. On further still, until they reached Capua, where suddenly, unexpectedly, as they crossed over the railway bridge, the road bridge had been smashed. They were drenched by a thunderstorm. Once across, they finally reached Cascano, the division's primary destination. A pause. And while they paused, Golda watched yet more Allied aircraft, bombers heading north, he and his men counted the machines. If only they had such air power, they thought. But then their mood lightened as three Luftwaffe fighter planes roared into attack, cannons and machine guns blazing. Shouts of jubilation. Then cheers as first one, then a second and a third bomber fell. One trundled slowly earthwards, another fell like a stone, a mighty trail of smoke following in its wake. An Italian farmer suddenly appeared, accompanied by some German officers. Italians? were still allies. The farmer was irate. More than a dozen of his chickens stolen. The officers wondered whether Golda's men were guilty of this misdemeanour. Golda was incensed. No, his men had not stolen any chickens. What a suggestion. The rules were strict. No pilfering. A German soldier was allowed to barter for goods, but not steal. Commanders were authorised to shoot those who broke these rules. It didn't mean such draconian measures were often enforced, but Golda, for one, was prepared to back his men. They were innocent. What an outrageous slur. 
Frustrated, the farmer and the officers moved on, continuing their search for the culprits. Later, though, suspicious wafts of roasting chicken drifted across their hastily constructed encampment. Shortly after, one of his men offered him a portion of Hendelhaxen, a chicken drumstick, which he ate both with considerable pleasure and with little research into its origin. A day at Cascano, and then they were ordered to their final destination for the time being, the village of Roccamonfina, nestling high along the edge of an ancient volcano crater. A serpentine climb up a dusty strada bianca and into a beautiful chestnut grove at the village's edge. Below them was Sessa, with its ancient Roman amphitheatre and an enchanting view to the dark Tyrrhenian Sea and the Bay of Gaeta beyond. Immediately, all around them, a belt of still-dense woods of chestnuts, oaks, sycamores and olive groves, distant villages peeking through the verdant haze. Vehicles and werfers parked up, tents erected. What a country! What a view! Golda was determined to enjoy himself, a brief chance to take things a little easy. Some bathing in that warm, inviting, sparkling sea just a few miles away, and a chance to unwind. Really, their new surroundings could hardly be more perfect. A few days of calm then, but it was not going to last long. This bitter war was not over, not by a long chalk, despite the turning of the Axis tide. The momentary lull was just a pause and nothing more. The clouds of war were rolling in again, and Golda and his men would soon be caught up in the typhoon. So too would countless hundreds of thousands, millions even. Winter was coming. Part 1. Summer Chapter 1. The Burning Blue Morning, Friday, the 20th of August 1943. At Cancello Airfield, 30 miles or so northwest of Naples, the fighter pilots of two Jagdgeschwader JG-53 were waiting at their squadron dispersal. This crew base for the pilots was not a building, not a hut, not even a tent. Rather, just an awning, a mottled brown camouflage canvas, pegged to the ground at the back and propped up by square posts and guy ropes. Under the shade of the awning were a few camp beds and some woollen rugs laid on the hard-baked clay. Ahead, thin bleached grass, and across the flat expanse of the airfield, in the distance, hazy blue hills rising gently. The early morning sun was already casting a warm glow over the airfield. Immediately in front of them were freshly dug slit trenches, the piles of dark brown spoil offering a little extra protection. Not far away, within easy running distance, stood their Messerschmitt 109s, Gustavs, painted in a similar mottled pattern to that of their awning, but grey rather than khaki. A few other features singled out these fighter planes, the black and white spiral spinner and the single pick A painted onto each of the engine cowlings, for JG-53 were known as the Ace of Spades. A little distance away, a wooden trailer that looked rather like a short railroad carriage. This was six staffel or squadron command post. Each of the three staffeln had their own command post, own dispersal and own areas for their personal tents. There were makeshift wooden tables, benches and an assortment of chairs where meals were eaten, but this was as much a campsite as it was an airfield. The second JG-53 were camping out here at Cancello and had been since they'd arrived from Sicily three weeks earlier. It was rough and ready, to say the least. Much was asked of these young men, both the pilots who were expected to get into their machines and take on a superior enemy, and the ground crews who had to keep these fighter planes in the air with limited supplies and insufficient facilities. Flying combat aircraft was exhausting, physically and mentally, 
It was tougher when the surroundings were so basic, with the sun blazing down, with mosquitoes a constant menace, when you were very rarely able to get all twelve of the Staffel's machines in the air. When senior commanders far away in Rastenburg or Berlin were constantly berating your efforts. When you were losing. It was hot already, not a breath of wind. The pilots only wore sand-coloured khaki shorts and short-sleeved shirts, something not encouraged in the Allied Air Forces, no matter how hot it was on the ground. If an aircraft caught fire, clothing was an extra barrier between flame and skin. But Luftwaffe pilots were willing to take that chance. At dispersal, on this already bright August morning, most of the pilots tried to use the time for extra sleep and so lay on the rugs on the hard ground. Some slept, others dozed. Feltwebel Eugen Kurtz, on the other hand, was wide awake, perched on a camp bed staring out at the airfield, waiting. The Allies would be over at some point, big four-engine bombers, twin-engine medium bombers and their escorts of P-38 Lightnings. Every day, pounding airfields and railway yards, and because there were comparatively few Luftwaffe to defend these Allied targets, and even fewer Italians of the Regia Aeronautica, the Air Force, more was expected of those who did still have machines, who could still fly. And so here they were, another day, another morning, sitting, lying, sleeping at their dispersal, waiting for the call that would inevitably come. It came a little after midday. Alarm! Pilots up immediately, whether sleeping or not, running across the baked dusty soil, brittle grass prickling at their bare legs. Ground crews starting up the engines, puffs of flame and smoke from the exhaust stubs, parachutes and flying helmets snatched from the wing, foot into the groove on the fuselage, up onto the wing and clamber into the cockpit. That familiar smell, oil, rubber, metal and fuel. Radio leads in, oxygen leads in, signal to the ground crew, open the throttle, rumble forward, jolting across the earthen field, port rudder because of the immense torque from the Daimler-Benz engine. Speed rising, clouds of dust, visibility poor if you were the last to get airborne. Then the shaking stopped, and the shadows on the ground parted company with the machine as the Messerschmitts rose from the ground, clear again. Their corner of Italy spread before them, the sea just a short distance from their port side. The crackle of static in the headphones, and a voice announcing an enemy formation approaching Capua, a small town on the river Volturno just below them. Both 4th and 6th Staffel had been scrambled. The 4th JG-53 were based across the airfield from 6th JG-53. And among those now climbing was Feldwebel Robert Gugelberger, still one of the new boys in his Staffel. He'd joined them in Sicily on the 17th of July, straight from training, and flown his first combat mission the following day. And fortunately for him and his comrades, had lived to tell the tale. The quality of fresh pilots had taken a huge dip since the start of the war. Back in September 1939, when Germany had invaded Poland, the Luftwaffe had had four years to build up strength, gain combat experience in the Spanish Civil War, and create a cadre of highly experienced pilots who would help spearhead the Blitzkrieg years of victory and territorial gains. Now, though, almost four years on, Germany was running short of just about everything, from manpower to essential resources. This had a huge effect on the Luftwaffe because there was simply not enough fuel to train pilots sufficiently. Furthermore, training had to be done over the skies of Europe, where the weather was unreliable and where large parts were threatened by enemy air activity. Demand for pilots was also rising because of the terrible toll being taken. Since November the previous year, the Luftwaffe had lost nearly 6,000 aircraft in the Mediterranean theatre alone. It was a staggering number. Lack of fuel, crippling losses and demand all conspired to ensure that pilots like Robert Gugelberger were reaching the front and being flung into the fray 
with perhaps 120 hours in their logbooks, in total, if they were lucky, and often less. This was not nearly enough. Allied fighter pilots, by contrast, were trained in North America and Africa, where the skies were wide and clear and where decent weather could be guaranteed. They were reaching squadrons with as much as 350 hours in their logbooks and were then nurtured for a week or so before being allowed to fly operationally. The mismatch in pilot skill on the opposing sides was becoming significant. So too, in the Mediterranean, were the numbers. Those losses had been replaced in part, but not in total. Most of Second Flieger Corps was now in northern Italy, protecting the passes in and out of Italy and the Reich's southern borders. Only a few fighter groups could be spared to defend the south. Nor were young pilots like Gugelberger helped by the aircraft they were flying, which in the case of the men of JG-53 was the Messerschmitt 109G. It had a quick rate of climb, could dive very fast and was highly manoeuvrable, but had small wings, which gave it a high wing loading and meant it could be a cruel mistress in which to take off and land. The big engine, a bit too powerful for the size of the airframe. It was not an issue in the hands of an experienced pilot, but was for those new to it with insufficient flying training. The trouble was, because there were no two-seater varieties, a young pilot's first flight was always a considerable leap of faith in a 109. If they made it through this first introduction, and the second and third, then chances of survival began to improve. They then had to confront their first combat mission, for which none were sufficiently prepared. But again, if they survived that and the next few, the odds began to lengthen. So a month on from joining 4th JG-53, Gugelberger was an old hand, having flown combat sorties just about every single day and having repeatedly found himself tussling with superior numbers of enemy aircraft. A sink-or-swim kind of scenario. So far, Gugelberger had managed to swim, although he was yet to shoot down an enemy aircraft. Accurate gunnery was incredibly difficult to master, which is why the majority of aircraft shot down were targeted by a small minority of superior marksmen. Poor marksmanship, however, was also another inevitable byproduct of insufficient training and exacerbated by the vastly superior numbers of enemy aircraft every time they were airborne. Gugelberger and his fellows climbed to some 18,000 feet until, away to their right, perhaps a 1,000 metres below, he could see two formations of enemy bombers with escorts of P-38 Lightnings. Out to sea, just a short distance away, more aircraft. Then bombs were exploding below, ripples of orange flashes and smoke. Suddenly, a huge explosion rising high into the sky as a munitions dump was hit. Lightnings directly below them, and now Gugelberger peeled over and dived the sun behind him. But his target had already spotted him and begun banking around, so that as Gugelberger approached, the American pilot was now turning towards him and opening fire, stabs of tracer fizzing across the sky. Gugelberger veered away, pulling up and turning towards the sea and clear out of the fray. A chance to get his bearings and try to calmly spot another target. Beneath him, several more flights of lightnings, one trailing the white smoke of coolant, it crashed on land in a ball of flame. A little way below, a wild dogfight. One plane hit the water in flames. No parachute. Five lightnings turned back towards land, maybe 500 metres below. Gugelberger dived again, aiming to open fire on the last. Thumb on the fire buttons, the airframe juddering, machine gun bullets and cannon shells streaking across the sky. But he had fired too soon, and from an angle, and the lightning had seen him, and once again Gugelberger found his enemy turning towards him with scarcely believable speed. Unable to break away, he continued diving, 
the engine screaming, his airspeed indicator flickering at more than 750 kilometres per hour. Air pressure, intense. He pulled the stick, worried he'd never make it out of the dive, but then at last felt his machine begin to level. Ahead, three 109s on the tail of a lightning. Feldwebel Steinmüller was scoring strikes, but with little obvious effect. Then suddenly, the American pilot bailed, his parachute opening just as he hit the sea, and a little way away, his lightning... I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Plunged into the water. Above, the sky had begun to clear, and so Googleberger turned for home, landing at 11.35am. It had been another combat sortie in which he'd done very little other than survive. Outclassed and outnumbered, these Luftwaffe fighter pilots were in a constant state of reaction, rarely able to take any initiative. And it was no wonder... At this moment in late August 1943, the Allied air forces operating in and around the Mediterranean amounted to a staggering 4,570 aircraft, which were divided into a number of different commands and forces, from the Northwest African Air Forces, which was home to the bulk, some 3,500 aircraft, to the Malta Air Command and the Middle East Air Command. All came under the overall control of Mediterranean Air Command. Both the British and the Americans were equally wedded to the conviction that air power was the key to Allied victory. Strategic air power, using air forces on their own to attack enemy targets, was at the very heart of both nations' war planning in the 1930s and remained a vital component of Allied strategy. From Britain, RAF Bomber Command had been attacking German targets since the night of the 17th of May 1940 and from early March 1943 had launched its all-out strategic air campaign against Germany initially targeting the Ruhr industrial heartland in western Germany, 
and then largely destroying Germany's largest city, Hamburg, at the end of July and beginning of August in what had been grimly called Operation Gomorrah. There had also been devastating one-off raids, such as that of the 16th and 17th of May 1943, when just 19 specially adapted Lancaster bombers had destroyed two of Germany's largest dams and badly damaged a third in a daring low-level raid. For the most part, the RAF believed in bombing by night, when the risks from enemy aircraft were considered to be less. By contrast, the United States Army Air Force, the USAAF, entered the war championing daylight bombing using massed formations of heavily armed four-engine bombers. At the Casablanca conference in January 1943, the Americans had suggested a strategic air campaign that focused on making its primary task destroying the Luftwaffe, targeting factories but also trying to lure aircraft into the air. This was formally adopted as Operation Point Blank in June. The theory was that once the Luftwaffe was destroyed, the Allies would have much greater freedom to accurately attack other targets because for all the enemy's anti-aircraft defences, it was their aircraft which unquestionably posed the greatest threat to Allied bombers. In the Mediterranean, a similar rule of thumb had taken hold, with RAF bomber forces operating mostly by night and the US bombers by day. The Division of Labour ensured that RAF and USAAF bombers could largely operate under their own steam, but also enabled the Allies to relentlessly target the enemy in Italy by day and night. Strategic air forces operating from both North Africa and Britain were now pounding targets in Italy daily. RAF Bomber Command hammered Milan as well as Genoa and Turin over four nights in mid-August, for example. In Milan, some 1,500 buildings were completely destroyed and a further 1,700 badly damaged. On the raid of the night of the 12th and 13th of August, more than 500 RAF heavies hit Milan, killing over 1,000 Italians. The main railway station was hit, so too was La Scala Opera House, and a number of churches were also caught in the blast, including the Church of Santa Maria della Grazia. As the day dawned, just one wall of the refectory remained still standing. Fortunately, this was the wall on which Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper was painted. Miraculously, it was untouched, but overall there was a devastating cultural cost to bombing, as well as the tragic human one. The Allies were on the side of democracy, but also of freedom. They viewed themselves as liberators. Increasingly, though, now the war had spread away from the vast open spaces of the desert to populous Europe. That liberty was being bought at a terrible price. While bombers from England were hitting the cities of northern Italy, heavies from North Africa were also playing their part in the wider point-blank plan, underlining the huge importance which long-range strategic targets held for the Allies. There might have been an invasion of Italy to prepare for, but Mediterranean Air Command bombers were still expected to operate further afield. The Ploesti oil fields in Romania had been hit by North African-based heavies on the 1st of August, for example, while the Messerschmitt Wiener Neustadt plant had been bombed two days later. This was the first target within the Reich itself, struck from bases in the Mediterranean. Commanding this enormous air effort were a number of highly charismatic and enlightened men, pioneers of a dynamic and rapid evolution that had long since overtaken anything the Axis could bring to bear. In many ways, it had begun a couple of years earlier under the then Air Chief Marshal Arthur Tedder, the Commander-in-Chief of RAF Middle East, and Air Marshal Arthur Conningham, Commander of the Desert Air Force. Both championed air power in the round, bombers to hit strategic targets further afield, coastal air power to assault enemy shipping, and then tactical air forces to provide close air support for the armies on the ground. Britain had begun the war with no tactical air force as such, which was why, in the autumn of 1941, 
Tedder and Conningham began to pioneer how close air support might work. Key was maintaining the decisions over what targets to hit, rather than allowing the army to call the shots. This was because army commanders had less understanding and appreciation of how air power worked, and also because they could rarely see beyond the immediate battlefield. The doctrine that Tedder and Conningham developed, and which had been subsequently sanctioned by Churchill, was that army commanders could request specific air support, and the air commanders would do their best to comply, but the decision as to what they provided and when remained theirs and theirs alone. It was an approach that had paid off handsomely the previous summer of 1942, when the Desert Air Force had saved 8th Army from annihilation after the fall of Tobruk. It was also air power, working in tandem with a rejuvenated 8th Army, that helped the Duke forces, Dominions, UK and Empire, smash the Panzer Armee at Alamein and surge westwards all across Egypt and Libya and into Tunisia. By the end of the war in North Africa, in Tunisia in May 1943, Conningham was commander of the North African Tactical Air Force and Tedder now the overall Allied Air Commander. They were, however, also working hand-in-glove with equally enlightened American air commanders, all of whom were every bit as excited by the possibilities of air power. Driving them were the opportunities aviation offered to reduce the risk on the ground. If air power could save the lives of the young men in the infantry and tanks leading the attacks below, then so much the better. It was a principle to which men like Major General Jimmy Doolittle and Lieutenant General Carl Tui Spots, spelt Spats, were wedded. Doolittle was one of the most famous men in America, a pioneering aviator, winner of numerous airspeed records, including the Schneider Trophy Air Race of 1925, a sparkling character, and following his leadership of a daring carrier-borne raid on Tokyo in April 1942, also recipient of the Medal of Honor, the United States' highest award for valour. His surname could hardly have been less appropriate. Doolittle had crammed a huge amount into his 46 years. He was now in command of the Northwest African Strategic Air Forces, so he was responsible for the relentless attacks on Axis lines of communication in Italy. But his immediate superior was General Spots. 51, with resolute jaw, trimmed silver moustache and ever-twinkling eyes, Spots exuded self-assured charisma and authority. With combat experience from the First World War, Spots had been a mainstay of the fledgling US Army Air Corps between the wars, believed absolutely in the primacy of air power and had been at the forefront of modernising the United States Air Forces. Forward-thinking, visionary and extremely energetic, he oozed competence and good sense from every pore. Sent to Britain in 1940 to observe the unfolding Battle of Britain, Spots had swiftly and correctly realised that the Luftwaffe could not win. Rather, the experience helped convince him that immense weight of numbers and ever-improving technology was what was needed for strategic air power to be decisive. In 1942, he had been posted back to England as the first commander of 8th Air Force, but had then been summoned to North Africa to take over the 12th. He quickly recognised that the Allied air forces out there were far too disjointed to be properly effective. Spots had urged greater cooperation and had been listened to. In February 1943, all Allied air forces, whether American or British, came under the single Mediterranean Air Command, with Tedder as its commander-in-chief. By far the largest component was the Northwest African Air Forces, command of which was given to Spots. So it was that by early 1943, British and American air commanders were operating cheek by jowl in the Mediterranean, bonded by a pioneering spirit of what they might achieve, and working together, for the most part, very effectively too. Complacency was not allowed to creep in. 
Men like Tedder, Spots, Doolittle, Conningham and others were always striving to further hone what assets they had and to make air power more effective. New techniques had emerged during the Sicilian campaign. Pinpointing ground targets was often difficult, especially when flying at high speed and when something on the ground might look like a pinprick, even from comparatively low altitudes. Rover Davids had been developed to help counteract this. An RAF officer would team up with an army forward observer and together, in an armoured car, would liaise with both ground and air forces using VHF radio sets, directing aircraft onto the target. Such fighter control techniques still had problems. VHF radios could easily overheat. There were also gaps in the mobile radar network, and even with radio contact, it was not always easy to effectively direct aircraft onto a small target. But this was still a brave new world, and air power remained an evolving science. The key was to learn and move forward, which the Allied Air Forces were unquestionably doing. Much experience had been gained, particularly during these first eight months of 1943, knowledge that was now being effectively absorbed. The training here, wrote General Hap Arnold, Commander-in-Chief of the US Army Air Force, to spots on the 20th of August, is rapidly catching up with your war experience. Certainly, Allied senior commanders were agreed that air power remained absolutely key to bring the war to a swift end. With this in mind, the opportunities for establishing a strategic air force in Italy began to emerge. Spots, for one, was above all a bomber man, and now wedded to the point-blank concept of destroying the Luftwaffe as soon as possible. If we can establish ourselves in Italy, he wrote in a letter to Arnold in June, well before Sicily had even been invaded or a detailed plan for Italy been made, much of Germany can be reached from there with better weather conditions at our aerodromes than prevail normally in England. This would immediately, when applied, force a dispersion of the German fighter and anti-aircraft defences. Arnold was not convinced at that point, but Spots did not drop the matter. Three weeks later in July, and with Sicily successfully invaded, Spots urged Arnold to back his plans for operating strategic air forces from Italy. I am confident we will progress up the Italian peninsula, he wrote to his chief, and before too many weeks have passed, we'll be in a position to bomb the fighter production plants in the vicinity of Vienna and other places now beyond the effort out of UK. He reckoned that from Italy bombers would be able to strike at up to 97% of German fighter production plants. Arnold was still not entirely persuaded, but Air Chief Marshal Sir Charles Portal, the British Chief of the Air Staff, was thinking very much the same way as Spots and eager to have heavy bombers in Italy within closer range of crucial German aircraft industry targets. As far as Portal was concerned, the Allies should not only invade Italy but move as many strategic air forces there as the logistics would allow. Portal's views carried even more weight than those of Spots because he was a member of the Combined Chiefs of Staff. In the meantime, however, those strategic bombers would continue operating from North Africa. The distance was a lot further, but in tandem with bombers based in Britain, they could further tighten the noose around both the Luftwaffe and the Nazi war effort as a whole. Meanwhile, Spots's Northwest African Air Forces was doggedly carrying out its other roles, and in this second half of August that meant primarily blasting enemy lines of communication. Rail marshalling yards and airfields especially, found themselves relentlessly bombed. So it was that the Allied bombers returned to the Capua area on the 26th of August, this time hammering Cancello. The pilots of 2nd JG-53 had already been airborne once that morning and had barely touched back down again at around 11.15am when they were scrambled once more. It was too late, however, for them to get airborne. 
Instead, Robert Googleberger and his fellows in Fourth Staffel made a dash for their slip trenches. Across the airfield, Feldwebel Gerhard Waag and the pilots of Sixth Staffel were in the same boat. This has become standard practice for the Allies, Varg later jotted in his diary, who somehow always know if we have landed. He could see the bombers coming, so, like Googleberger, dashed for a slip trench. Then a frightful crash, he noted. The ground shook and rumbled. Clods of dirt fell on us. We were half buried. When the raiders had passed, he and his comrades crawled out, his legs trembling with fear. Then they saw that a bomb had blasted out a crater that almost reached their slip trench. Another half metre, and they could all have been killed. They'd been lucky. Everywhere, piles of wreckage, wrote Varg. Fuel trucks and aircraft burning, ammunition from the aircraft flying through the air. Despite the devastation, none of the pilots or ground crew were even injured, although a number of local Italians had been killed. The following day, Varg looked on as a donkey cart trundled by. He watched an Italian man clamber down and start scooping up the various body parts. Varg was quite shocked. It was, he noted, horrible to watch. One of those who'd been regularly flying against the men of 2nd JG-53 was Lieutenant Robert Smokey Vrilakis, a fighter pilot in the 94th Fighter Squadron, part of 1st Fighter Group. The son of a Cretan father and an American mother, Vrilakis had been brought up on a farm in Northern California and had initially joined the Army Ground Forces back in early 1941, before the US was even at war. Much to his frustration, however, he had ended up as a typist at 7th Infantry Division HQ. With no interest at all in sitting out the war as a pen pusher, he began thinking about transferring to the Air Corps. He'd applied without much expectation, but by that time had two years of college education to his name, was bright, fit, and ticked all the boxes required by the Air Corps, and so much to his delight and astonishment he was accepted. A year later, he was on his way to the Mediterranean and flew his first combat mission on the 15th of July, around the same time as Robert Googleberger had reached the theatre. Unlike Googleberger, however, Vrilakas had almost 400 hours flying time in his logbook, including 98 in the P-38 Lightning. The Lightning was the only viable fighter escort the Allies could use over targets as high up the Italian leg as Naples, Caserta and Capua. This was because as a twin-boom, twin-engine aircraft, it could carry considerably more fuel than a smaller, single-engine fighter. Nor was the Lightning purely a fighter, but rather a multi-role aircraft. It could carry two tonnes of bombs, as much as a German Heinkel 111, for example. It was also bristling with weaponry, with one 20mm cannon and four 50 calibre machine guns, and was used as a day fighter, night fighter, fighter bomber and ground attack aircraft, and adapted versions were also used for photo reconnaissance. And it was fast, as Robert Googleberger had repeatedly discovered, with speeds well over 400 miles per hour, a terrific rate of climb and a robust airframe. As a twin-engine aircraft, it wasn't as manoeuvrable as a single-engine fighter, and its Allison V-1710 engine became less effective the higher the altitude at which it operated. But despite these flaws, it remained a formidable aircraft. More to the point, it was the only fighter currently in the Allied arsenal that had the range to escort the bombers as far as Naples and beyond. On Friday the 30th of August 1943, Vrilakas was scheduled to fly his 19th combat mission. At Matur, some 20 miles southwest of Bizerta, in northern Tunisia, the pilots of 1st Fighter Group gathered in the briefing tent at 7am. Much of Tunisia was mountainous and hilly, but here, just south of Lake Ichkoil, it was flat, wheat-growing farmland that had once been a lake itself, 
ideal for a makeshift grass airfield. For a young American, used to the highest living standards of any population in the world, life at Matur had initially been something of a shock to the system. Vrilakas was not used to existing under canvas, but the airfield was a sea of tents, mess tents, briefing tents, medical tents, maintenance tents, crew tents, and tents in which to sleep. Vrilakas found himself sharing a four-man tent with folding cots for beds and a mosquito net, which was needed also to keep out scorpions, beetles, and a mass of other bugs. Latrines and showers, fashioned from 50-gallon steel drums, were also primitive and surrounded by canvas. Food was eaten from a mess tin, which every man had to clean himself, but there was only minimal water and never enough soap. As a result, everyone got diarrhoea at some point. In many ways, it was not so different from Cancello, just considerably more remote. It had also been home to JG53 earlier in the year. There was still a Messerschmitt there, abandoned when they'd moved out. Vrilakas had wasted no time in having himself photographed beside it. The sun bore down on them relentlessly. It had been blisteringly hot ever since he'd arrived in July, and this Monday morning looked like it was going to be no different. Outside, the vast burning blue above them, cloudless and infinite. There was some shade in the briefing tent. Men sat on rough wooden benches, smoking, wearing light summer khaki shirts and chinos, notebooks and pencils in hand to take down the details of call signs, start engine time and takeoff time, and any other key pieces of information. Today, the target was the marshalling yards at Aversa, north of Naples and southwest of Caserta, close by Cancello. Their task? To escort and protect the twin-engine B-26 bombers of the 319th and 320th bombardment groups. Briefing over, they then had to wait. An hour passed, then two. They finally took off around 10am amid clouds of swirling dust and the roar of 48 P-38 lightnings, 16 from each of the group's three squadrons. In no time, the coast of North Africa disappeared behind them, then a stretch across the dark Mediterranean until Sicily loomed up ahead, and here they met the formations of B-26 Martin Marauders. Bombing altitude for medium bombers was lower than it was for heavies, generally 10,000 to 12,000 feet, and so Vrilakas and the rest of the fighter group flew a little above, some 1,000 feet higher. As they neared Italy, Vrilakas could hear a humming in his headphones, the sound rising and falling. It was the whir of the enemy's radar system, scanning the skies for intruders. Cancello, 11.39am, scramble! Robert Googleburger and the pilots of 6 JG-53 run to their machines. Parachute on, climb onto the wing route and clamber into the cockpit. Leads, engines spluttering into life, throttle open, brakes off, go. Dust, grit, visibility terrible. Up off the ground, begin climbing into the blue. An enemy formation with strong fighter escort approaching. Level off at 4,000 metres, 12,000 feet. Get higher than the enemy escorts. The group had been equipped with rockets slung under the wings, used for the first time the day before, and not very effectively. No time had been allowed or fuel spared for practising with these new weapons. Below, the enemy. Googleberger could see them, the bombers attacking Aversa, the fighters circling behind them. He and his staffel dived steeply, reversed course, and then hurtled towards the bombers from dead ahead. A target filled his gun sight. Googleberger fired his rockets and saw them streak across the sky, straight through the middle of the enemy formation, and then explode behind them. Another miss. Googleberger dived beneath the bombers and then pulled up. There was Steinmüller. They closed up and attacked the P-38 Lightnings, Googleberger diving and firing a burst of bullets and cannons. No obvious strikes. 
Smokey Vrilakis had reached the target amid a few puffs of flak. Bombers completed their run. Bombs away, ripples of flame and smoke below. Bombers already turning for home, and now it was their turn too. At that moment, someone called out, Bogies high! Vrilakis turned his head and saw a mass of enemy fighters, a whole gaggle, diving down towards them. Urgent manoeuvring, formation flights broken up as lightnings turned to evade the attackers. Hurtling around the sky, Vrilakis saw Messerschmitt 109s, Italian Mackie 202s and P-38 Lightnings all mixing it up in a swirling melee. An aircraft diving, trailing smoke, others blowing up and plummeting earthwards. Tracer crisscrossing the blue. Suddenly, a P-38 and a 109 collided head-on, exploding in a vivid and shocking ball of fire and angry, swirling black smoke. And there, heading out to sea, Harry Rigney's aircraft, on fire, a 94th Fighter Squadron man, a parachute swinging down. Moments later, the aircraft bellied into the water. In the same part of the sky, Robert Googleberger, who had felt Verbal Steinmuller still flying alongside him, managed to get on the tail of two lightnings. Positioning himself behind the second, he pressed down on the gun button and fired. Bursts on target, but now tracer and bullets fizzing and whistling past him in turn. Pulling back hard on the stick, his machine climbing vertically. Relief to have got away, still alive. Glancing down, he saw his target disappearing in flames shot down by one of his fellow pilots. A quick look at the fuel gauge, running low. Time to turn home. Smokey Vrilakis was wondering whether he'd ever make it home. Everywhere he looked, P-38 Lightning seemed to be plunging out of the sky. They'd been bounced for once, and no mistake. A glance at his fuel gauge. Dogfighting used up juice. Time to turn for home, and he heard his squadron leader, Lieutenant Jimmy Dibble, give the order to head around the Bay of Naples and try to reform. Suddenly, a 27th Squadron P-38 sped past him, a 109 on his tail, firing. Vrilakis broke into him, opened fire, cannon and 50 caliber machine guns raking the enemy aircraft. Moments later, it broke off, diving in a spiralling, uncontrolled spin. A victory, but there was danger ahead as the manoeuvre had taken him out over the Bay of Naples and towards more enemy fighters. The rest of the squadron was now out of sight. Vrilakis was on his own and badly outnumbered. Only one thing for it. Vrilakis pushed forward the control column and dived for the sea. Tracer whipping past him, glanced in the mirror and behind, the black and white spinner of a Messerschmitt 109 just 100 yards behind him. Bullets rattling his airframe with a rippling metallic clang, then an occasional louder burst as a cannon shell exploded. Kick left rudder to yaw the ship, make it a harder target. Tracer veering too far, then another clatter as the German pilot corrected his aim once more. Vrilakis hugged the sea as close as he dared, spumes of water ahead of him, where his enemy's bullets were hitting the water. At any moment, his engine could explode or his P-38 plunge into the water. Why hadn't it? But now he saw he was overtaking another Messerschmitt directly ahead and a hundred feet above him. Thoughts racing through his mind. If he climbed up and opened fire, he would expose himself to the 109 behind him. On the other hand, he was travelling so fast he would soon overtake it, and then he'd have two enemy on his tail not one. If I'm going, thought Vrilakis, I'm taking him with me. Pulling up, he opened fire with all four machine guns and his cannon. Smoke from the 109, but also a crash on his own airframe as his pursuer opened fire again. One bullet creased the canopy, knocking out the rear plexiglass, which shattered all around the cockpit. Some even went into his mouth. Dive for the deck again. Right engine oil temperature rising, but mercifully, no more bullets. Shut down starboard engine, a glance at the left, 
despite cannon and bullet holes, his P-38 was still flying. No rapid fuel loss either. Behind him, his pursuer had gone. Low on fuel, no doubt, and the P-38 looking good to soon hit the water. Vrilakis called up Dibble on the radio. His squadron leader and two others agreed to turn round, find him and nurse him home. Not to Mature, but to Sicily, which, thank God, was now in Allied hands. Then there they were, on his wings, flying over the sea, Sicily taking an interminably long time to appear. Would his ship make it? His airframe was riddled with bullet and cannon holes. One blackened engine was out. At last, he spotted Sicily, an airfield under construction, but with enough pierced steel planking for him to attempt a landing. Carefully, Vrilakis lined up and came into land. Relief. But now a truck was crossing the end of the runway ahead of him, and so at the last moment he pulled up and went round again, heart in his mouth, runway lining up a second time. This occasion, clear. Speed dropping, height dropping, touch down, taxi clear and shut down, only for his second engine to now burst into flames. A waiting fireman rushed forward, spraying the flames with an extinguisher. I sat quietly in the cock for a moment, noted Vrilakis, considering how fortunate I had just been to survive. He tried to let the adrenaline subside. Physically and emotionally, he was exhausted. Silently, he offered thanks to God. When he did finally clamber down, his P-38 looked like a sieve. Between 60 and 80 holes had perforated his machine. Even the props had several holes in them. The 94th alone lost five planes that day, including two pilots killed, while the 71st lost three and the 27th one. Those were high figures for one fighter group, losses they were not used to suffering. For once, it seemed, the Axis fighter pilots had come out on top, although not by much. Six German planes had also been shot down, including Unteroffizier Leo Nissen from 4th JG-53. The Italians had not lost any on this occasion. The air battle over Italy would continue in the days and weeks to come, but soon was to be joined by the battle on the ground. The following day, Tuesday the 31st of August, Italian Generale Giuseppe Castellano arrived at General Sir Harold Alexander's 15th Army Group HQ at Cassibili in Sicily to talk terms. The next day, the fourth anniversary of Germany's invasion of Poland, those terms would be accepted. Italy was about to get out of the war, yet the war was coming to Italy. The typhoon of steel was approaching.